Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody here to uh, to the Heritage Foundation for our annual Supreme Court review. Uh, I trust that everybody has taken a moment to silence their phones. If not, I would appreciate it if you would uh, do so. So we are very fortunate to have with us today uh, three of the nation's leading appellate lawyers to discuss some of the key Supreme Court cases from the term that just ended. Uh, I will be keeping their introductions. Oh, I'm, I'm John Malcolm, by the way. I'm the vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government uh, here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, in terms of our panelists, I will be keeping their introductions very short, certainly way shorter than any of them deserves, so that you can, uh, we can spend more time where you will hear directly from them. Uh, I'll first introduce uh, to my immediate left Mike Carvin. Mike is a graduate of George Washington uh, Law School, and he is currently a partner at Jones Day. Uh, Mike spent many years at the Department of Justice, uh, serving in senior positions in the Office of Legal Counsel and in the Civil Rights Division. Uh, he has argued 11 cases in front of the Supreme Court, including the constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act, and this year he argued uh, the Bladensburg Peace Cross case, which is one of the cases we will be discussing. Uh, Mike was also one of the lead lawyers and argued before the Florida Supreme Court on behalf of uh, George W. Bush in the 2000 presidential uh, recount uh, fight that took place in Florida. Uh, next uh, to his left is Andy Pincus. Andy is a partner uh, at Mayor Brown, uh, a graduate of Yale Law School, Andy Clerk for Judge Harold Green of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Uh, he's held a, a variety of very important positions uh, over the years. He served as general counsel at the Department of Commerce. Uh, he was general counsel at Anderson Worldwide SC, and he was an assistant to the Solicitor General at the Justice Department. Uh, he has argued 29 cases before the Supreme Court, including two this past term, and he is also the co-founder and co-director of Yale Law School's Supreme Court Advocacy Clinic. To Andy's left is Cannon Shamigan. Uh, Cannon is the managing partner at the D.C. office of Paul Weiss. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. He clerked for uh, Michael Ludig on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and for Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Uh, Cannon was also a veteran of the Solicitor General's office at the Department of Justice. He has argued 27 cases before the Supreme Court, including four this past term. And with that... Let's jump into uh, the cases. Mike, let's start with one of the big cases that has not as yet been, uh, been resolved. In fact, the president said he's going to make some kind of an announcement about the underlying issue this afternoon, uh, and that is Department of Commerce versus New York, the census case. So what happened there? So um, 
to give you my completely unbiased view, I think it was one of the more illogical and internally contradictory decisions that's come out of the Supreme Court in recent years. Why do I say that? The entire fight, the entire disputed issue was whether or not you should add the citizenship question to the census form. And the entire argument was that this would result in an undercount of Latinos and non-citizens and therefore uh, depress them from federal funding and redistricting and the like. And therefore, that uh, at least the most extreme argument was this had some kind of racial connotation. So again, the issue was whether or not you should put the census question, the citizenship question on the census form. There was no debate about the underlying point that the government has an obvious interest in figuring out how many non-citizens are within the United States. Uh, we've been doing it for 200 years in one form or another. We've been asking it on the long form, uh, the ACS, or the short form census things. Virtually every country wants to know uh, uh, how many citizens and non-citizens are in their population. The public policy ramifications of this are very obvious. First of all, it's got a very important impact in terms of the Voting Rights Act. You need to show that a citizen voting age population is a majority to be entitled to a Latino majority district. Um, uh, but beyond, and that was the rationale that uh, was advanced by the Commerce Department. And But there's obviously other rationales. First of all, just from an immigration perspective, it'd be nice to know how many non-citizens are here if you're contemplating amnesty or if you're contemplating uh, what the problems are with having non-documented citizens in the country, non-citizens in the country, and federal funding. Uh, for example, Obamacare doesn't give... Uh, subsidies to non-citizens, and so you'd need to know this for federal funding reasons. So there's literally a variety of legitimate reasons, and, and it was quite clear during the argument the New York Solicitor General got up and said, of course, we don't mind getting this information. It's how you're getting the information. It's putting it on the census form. And uh, 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 Justice Alito noticed that in his concurrence as well. So there was never any debate about that. So how did the court decide the case? It said that the issue that everybody was debating uh, the Commerce Department was completely uh, justified in asking uh, uh, the census question on uh, the citizenship question on the census form. The debate was about, again, not whether you wanted to know how many citizens, but how you got that information. The alternatives would be to continue to use this sort of survey or to use administrative records to do it, but uh, they, the court, five to four, upheld quite legitimately, the notion that uh, getting it on the census form was a perfectly appropriate thing to do. So you would think, since the question was legitimate, the ends were legitimate, and the means were legitimate, that would be the end of the case. But then, at the end of the opinion, uh, a five to four majority with Chief Justice Roberts joining the Democratic appointees said, well, they were a little inconsistent, however, in what rationale they wanted to use. They put forward uh, this voting rights rationale, but there's some indications that there was other reasons involved. And that's fine because it's a staple of administrative law. If your articulated reason is enough, it doesn't matter if you've got some secret reasons because that would just give you additional rationales for asking uh, the question. And there was evidence that uh, the Secretary of Commerce was pretty intent on getting this question on the census form before uh, the Justice Department had weighed in with this voting rights rationale. And again, the court said that's perfectly fine too. Obviously, every 
regime, particularly a new regime, has got some policies they want to do. If uh, Elizabeth Warren gets elected president, there's going to be secretaries of education who are very interested in how I deal with student loan defaults and the like. Uh, in Obamacare, all of the rationales were obviously affected by their desire to make this uh, uh, Obamacare statute work, and that was always viewed quite properly in the administrative law context as, as sort of a non-issue. So uh, why it would matter if the Voting Rights Act was a, quote, pretext when all of the other non-articulated reasons were also fully legitimate literally doesn't make any sense. And you don't have to accept my word for this. I do want to read from the majority opinion on this where he says... Uh, it is hardly improper for an agency head to come into office with policy preferences and ideas, discuss them with affected parties, sound out other agencies for support, and work with staff fraternities to substantiate the legal basis for a preferred policy. And then they proceeded to strike down what the secretary had done because he had coordinated with other agencies and, and not worked with the staff attorney. So the, the articulated rationale for getting rid of the census doesn't make any sense. And again, I want to come back to this word pretext. It wasn't pretext for a racist reason. Nobody was arguing figuring out how many citizens in the country is racist. They were arguing that putting it on the census form could have been motivated by racial reasons because it would lead to an undercount of Latinos. But having upheld putting it on the census form, it literally makes no sense to uh, talk about pretext after you've done that. So uh, it was an illogical uh, opinion which would revolutionize the Administrative Procedure Act review if anyone took it seriously, which I doubt anybody will because this will be viewed as other opinions in this ilk have been viewed as sort of a one-off that really doesn't affect cases outside of the particular context. Uh, and we can all speculate about why uh, they came to this illogical result. I don't really like to get involved in speculation about why justices do what they do any more than I like to speculate about why the Secretary of Commerce did what he did. I will say that the clear effect of what has happened is that the court is being viewed as more political than it would have been if they had applied normal administrative law standards. You don't diminish the perception of the court as being a political actor by engaging in uh, legal analysis that everyone knows you would never apply in a garden variety type of EPA, APA case involving FERC. What you do is create the impression that the court is just another political actor that's affected by uh, the particular wins. So whatever the reasoning behind the rationale here was or the motives behind the rationale, the clear public perception is this was political. And indeed, every commentary in the wake of the argument that praised what Chief Justice Roberts did, did it in starkly political terms that he was acting as a statesman to bridge the divide. Which again, if you're trying to portray the court as a citadel of neutrality outside of the political uh, sphere, uh, uh, is greatly undermined if everyone perceives them as just another political actor who's affected by New York Times editorials and the like. Andy Cannon, anything to add to that? Well, I guess I'll, I'll add a few things. Okay. I have a slightly different perspective. I filed a brief in the case uh, on behalf of all of the former census directors uh, opposing the administration's position. And I guess Mike's analysis sort of turns on whether you believe that the majority applied regular principles of administrative law or not, and I guess I take a different view because the whole inquiry under the Administrative Procedure Act is, was the decision arbitrary and capricious based on the administrative record? 
And to know that, you sort of have to know the reason for the decision, because you can only judge whether it was arbitrary and capricious if you know the real reason for the decision. And I think what the Chief Justice said uh, in his opinion for the court was, if this if the real reason for the decision was the stated reason to provide the data needed for uh, voting uh, Voting Rights Act enforcement, uh, then it was supported by the administrative record. But he concluded that actually wasn't the real reason for the decision because the record showed that the decision had been made long before that rationale had ever been floated by anybody. So I guess my view is slightly different, which is it's sort of critical for the function of judicial review of administrative agencies that the a reason for the agency decision that's assessed to determine whether it's arbitrary and capricious has to be the real reason. That's the transparency in the process, and that's what allows courts to decide whether the decision is right. And the problem here, the Chief Justice found, and as did every judge that's looked at this issue uh, in the lower courts, uh, that that wasn't the real reason. And so uh, I think it was actually the right way to apply the Administrative Procedure Act. And we'll see what happens this afternoon. Yeah. There'll be more development. <laughs> Can I do something you want to add, or should we go to the Yeah, next? I just sure. very um, briefly, you know, I would say that I, I think this opinion is very um, redolent of the court's first opinion upholding the Affordable Care Act, in that you have this opinion written by the Chief Justice that in many ways um, sides with the administration here, but then at the last minute kind of swerves and ends up invalidating the administration's action, and one can speculate about whether the Chief Justice might have had a change of heart. I think many people coming out of the oral argument thought that it looked as if a majority of the court was poised to uphold the administration's decision, and there were all of these shenanigans about allegedly newly discovered evidence that took place after the oral argument in the case. But like uh, uh, Mike, I'm not going to speculate about uh, 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 psychoanalysis here and why the court reached the decision that it did. I would respectfully disagree with Andy somewhat about the correct application of the Administrative Procedure Act. I think ordinarily in arbitrary and capricious review, courts look at the administrative record, and much as they do when they're engaged in rational basis review of constitutional claims, courts typically uh, assume that the rationales that are offered, the stated rationales, are legitimate ones, and then proceed to assess whether, based on the administrative record, the government had a reasoned explanation for its action. There is an exception uh, recognized in the law for cases involving pretext. It goes back to a case called Overton Park, but rather like the non-delegation doctrine, it's been recognized in theory and rarely applied, and the court nevertheless decided to apply it here. And I think, as Mike said, if you take that to its logical conclusion, it would suggest that whenever you have an administrative action, you should peer into the intent of government actors and determine whether the rationale that was stated was, in fact, uh, the rationale on which the government actors were acting. And the dissent, I think, has a lot of force when it says that if you uh, permitted that in every single garden variety APA challenge, it would revolutionize administrative law. But I share Mike's perhaps somewhat cynical sense <laughs> that um, this is one of those good-for-this-ride-only major-issue decisions from the Supreme Court that um, uh, lower courts are, are probably going to look skeptically at, at least as a rationale for 
other types of challenges. And so I don't think that this decision is going to open the door, but I think that's only because lower courts are going to be reluctant to uh, uh, apply it by its terms, and they're instead going to confine it to this context. Right, well, and the only other thing I would add is that I think the administration's in a very uh, uh, challenging position here because the administration uh, did tell the Supreme Court that it needed an answer to this question by June the 30th because it needed to print the census forms. Uh, the president has indicated that the administration is going to come up with uh, a new rationale and, and presumably continue to defend the decision to add the citizenship question. The administration is in front of uh, at least two not very friendly district court judges, however, and they're also under this time exigency. And so I think this is going to present a litigation challenge for the Justice Department going forward. Well, time permitting, we'll get to the non-delegation doctrine, which you mentioned. So let's move to the next case. Uh, so, Cannon, why don't you talk about the case, actually, that, that Mike argued, the uh, the Bladensburg Peace Cross case? Well, I'll try to do it justice, and I'm sure Mike will, will chip in if I don't. Um, let me just say, first and foremost, it's great to be back uh, at the Heritage Foundation for this program. I think this program used to be called the Scribes and Scholars, Scholars Program. And scribes, yes. And, and I guess maybe you guys looked at this panel and you just thought <laughs> that would be false advertising. Um, but um, uh, so uh, it's, it's great to be, scholarly or not, it's great to be back here uh, for this program. Um, so I'm going to talk about this very interesting case, uh, American Legion versus uh, American Humanist Association. And Mike very ably represented the American Legion and successfully in this case. Uh, this is sort of yet the latest in this series of cases involving uh, so-called passive religious displays, displays that have a religious component to them. Um, this is a cross, a 40-foot high Christian cross that has been sitting without objection in the middle of what is now basically a traffic circle in suburban Washington. Uh, it is a memorial that was erected in the immediate wake of World War One to pay tribute to uh, uh, the residents of the area who fell in the Great Wall, a war, and and it has been there essentially for a hundred years, um, uh, and it is maintained by uh, a component of the state of Maryland. Um, it was challenged uh, a couple of years ago by the American Humanist Association, which is a group of atheists on the ground that it constituted an improper establishment of religion under the First Amendment, which prohibits the establishment, it prohibits Congress from uh, establishing a state. Religion and the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, which has jurisdiction over Maryland, uh, agreed with the challengers that there was a constitutional problem here and that the monument would have to be either moved or dismantled. Uh, the American Legion, uh, as well as the, the state actor, uh, sought Supreme Court review and the court granted review. And, you know, I think that in many ways this felt like an easy case because there were so many um, atmospherics pointing in the direction of uh, uh, Mike's client. This uh, 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 memorial had been present for a long time. Uh, of course, the use of Christian crosses and Jewish stars and other symbols in connection with war memorials has, you know, a, a long history and tradition. And, and so I think in many ways, the outcome in this case was not surprising. I think what we were all watching this case for was what the court was going to say about the legal standard for these sorts of claims. And the court um, had historically applied a, a standard, I think the aptly named lemon test, <laughs> for determining whether these sorts of claims can go forward. This is sort of one of those famous multi-part tests that looks at the purpose and the effect of the monument and whether uh, the, the placement of the monument would lead to excessive entanglement uh, with uh, between the state and religion, whatever that means. And I think this test has been long criticized, and 
uh, increasingly rarely applied in these cases. And so I think everyone was looking at this case to see if the court would shed more clarity on the appropriate legal standard. Well, if you were looking for clarity, you came to the wrong place because in the end, the court upheld uh, the monument by a comfortable seven to two margin, but with uh, no fewer than seven opinions from the nine members of the court. And the plurality opinion was written by Justice Alito. And that opinion, I think, articulated what we have long, what many of us have long thought about the court's jurisprudence in this area, which is that it is largely driven by um, uh, how long these monuments have been in place and by uh, historical considerations. And I think this opinion probably went further than uh, any other opinion, or at least any other opinion that's commanded a number of justices in sort of saying, look, this monument has been in place for a long time. If we were to uh, order its its movement or dismantlement, uh, we would be engaging in an act that itself was actually hostile to religion because it would widely be perceived as, a, as an act of hostility uh, to order this uh, monument to be moved. Uh, Justice Alito sort of talked about the, the long history of the use of symbols like crosses in, in these monuments, and it was really a very eloquent opinion, but what was interesting about it was uh, this heavy reliance on history. It was almost as if the Establishment Clause had been turned into a grandfathering clause where the, the primary driver in the analysis is how long has the monument been in place. Uh, in the end, I think you had four members of the court who basically suggested that the Lemon Test should be discarded. The plurality opinion said that the Lemon Test was inapplicable in this context, therefore at least leaving open the possibility that it could be applied in some other context. But I think it's quite clear that the general direction of travel at the court is away from application of the Lemon Test. I think the real underlying question is what does this historical test actually mean? And I think Justice Kavanaugh wrote a very interesting concurring opinion where he said that the question is not, you know, how long a particular monument has been in place, but rather whether this type of monument has a long history and tradition. And that would suggest, for instance, that if you had a similar memorial that was erected uh, to commemorate the fallen in uh, you know, the latest wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that that would pass constitutional muster. Um, and it's an interesting question whether a majority of the court would agree with that. Um, but I think a, the overriding takeaway from this is that we continue to be in this kind of somewhat uncertain world where it's unclear what tests the court would apply to these sorts of passive displays. And of course, the court has had a variety of factual permutations of these cases. Last thing I would just point out is that there are two very interesting concurring opinions, one from Justice Gorsuch and one from Justice Thomas. Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion uh, uh, taking the view that there was simply no standing here because the theory of standing in these cases is that if you take offense as an observer to one of these monuments, that's enough to give you standing. And what's peculiar about that is that that would potentially give anyone and everyone standing in these cases. And uh, while the court has long permitted these sorts of claims to go forward, uh, the court has never really stoutly defended whether or not uh, plaintiffs in these cases have standing. And I think there are very good arguments as to why they would not. Um, Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion restating his view that the Establishment Clause simply isn't incorporated against the states. Of course, the First Amendment speaks in terms of Congress, and he uh, took that view uh, once again uh, in this case. 
Uh, and I think it's a it's a very interesting argument, again, one that he has made in, in other contexts, but obviously, like all the other opinions, did not command a majority of the court. So, uh, you know, we'll see what other cases come down the pike, and maybe we'll get more clarity in the future, but I'm skeptical with the current court that there is going to be a great deal of agreement, at least as to the governing legal standard in these cases. One, one thing I guess I, that struck me when I was reading those opinions was nobody had a kind word to say about the Lemon Test, not even the two dissenters. I mean, it, it may be on life support, but nobody had anything good to say about that test. Uh, Andy, Mike, anything to add? Uh, well, two points. One is on, on that. Well, first off, I want to fully agree with Cannon that the case was brilliantly argued. <laughs> <laughs> Passing that point. I don't think I said you brilliantly argued. I, just, I think I just said you won. <laughs> so therefore, by definition, it was brilliantly argued. On the fractured opinion point that Cannon quite clearly articulated, uh, I, this is sort of a, a institutional issue. It seems to me that the, I'll call them the conservative justices, need to get together occasionally instead of writing, concurring in the judgments and going off. This case is a perfect example. You clearly have six votes for saying Lemon should never be applied in at least the speech context. Um, you have the four in the Alito plurality, and then you have Justices Thomas and Gorsuch. So why not write an opinion where you can two paragraphs where you can get six votes on that, or uh, even if you lost Breyer, you'd get five votes on it, and then Thomas and uh, Gorsuch can go off and say, but but we disagree with what follows in the wake of Lemon. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, there were six justices who quite clearly said that Lemon shouldn't apply in this context. But, you know, the Ninth Circuit will probably engage in massive resistance to that, and you could have eliminated that ambiguity by just creating an opinion. So it seemed to me the court's business of providing some guidance to lower courts would be more effectively implemented if they could figure out what they agreed with, have that opinion, and then have the disagreement expressed elsewhere in the opinion. In terms of the Alito test itself, uh, I think Cannon put his finger on it. If, if a history-based test is not a problem, we, we argued that the Establishment Clause only prohibits coercive activities by the government, meaning speech doesn't violate the Establishment Clause, symbolic speech like this or, or verbal speech like In God We Trust. Um, and uh, you could read the Alito opinion to say, as Kavanaugh did, anything which reflects what the framers were doing you know, around the time of the First Amendment uh, can't be an Establishment Clause violation. And that gets you to basically the same place because that was infused with religious speech. So basically what you're saying is that religious speech is not an Establishment Clause problem. The problematic part of the Alito opinion, as Cannon also rightly noted, is he kept talking about how they had to be long-standing uh, monuments and uh, this notion of a grandfather clause, if it was done in 1920, it's okay, but if it's done in 2019, it's not okay. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have a grandfather clause on the First Amendment to begin with, but the other point, which I think might get lost, is if you do this grandfather clause, that is a very clear sectarian bias. All of the old monuments are Christian-inspired because of our history. It's only in more recent years, World War II, the Holocaust, where you've seen Jewish uh, symbols, you've seen Muslim symbols and the like. So if you took this grandfather clause seriously, you would basically be put an imprimatur on all kinds of Christian symbols like crosses, but eliminate the more modern ones, which are almost universally non-Christian. Uh, and, and, and if the Establishment Clause means anything, it's that you can't uh, distinguish among different religious sects. So I, I in the real world, when they try and apply this test, it'll be very interesting
interesting to see. I'm hoping that the next challenges to the 2001 uh, South Carolina uh, Memorial to the Holocaust that uses the Star of David and see if they really take this longstanding uh, position very seriously. I guess it's my day to disagree with Mike, but I, I guess I, I think the grandfather test is a little more context-specific. Some of the things that Justice Alito said was, first of all, it's probably likely that all the people actually memorialized there were Christian, and second of all, that if you think about the sort of symbols associated with World War I, fields of crosses uh, in the United States, but also around the world, are, are a symbol that has become associated with World War I. And I think there are serious questions about whether if there was a memorial to people who died in uh, the Iran, in Iraq, uh, whether it would be constitutional to use only a cross, because that's obviously almost certainly going to memorialize lots of different people. So I think the, the lesson is, at least from Justice Alito, it's quite a context-specific inquiry, at least for now, and I think that probably is one reason why the Lemon Test hasn't sort of had its been nailed to the wall, is nobody really has a great replacement, at least yet. Andy, there was an important property rights uh, case, the Nick case. You want to talk a little bit about that one? Sure. Uh, I think a very important property rights case. Uh, this case involved a Pennsylvania town ordinance. The town of Scott had an ordinance that required cemeteries to be kept open and accessible to the general public during daylight hours. Uh, but the reality is in that town, and I think in many rural areas, uh, there are cemeteries on private property uh, where people were buried, ancestors uh, of the people in this case, Rosemary Nick, who owned the property, as well as ancestors of her neighbors. Uh, and she did not want to keep her property, 90 acres, open and accessible uh, during daylight hours every single day. So she sought an injunction in state court uh, invalidating that requirement. And that was denied uh, on the ground that she had no irreparable injury, because what many states have done in the property context is created what's called an inverse condemnation remedy, say, we're, you, we're going to give you a remedy in state court to sue for damages if you're claiming that state law inflicts a taking of your property. And that's the remedy we're providing. Uh, in the case called Williamson County, the Supreme Court had held that uh, in light of the existence of these inverse condemnation remedies, which are pretty widespread, uh, a, take, a federal constitutional takings claim didn't exist until the claimant, who says my property was taken, sought and was denied con, uh, compensation under those inverse condemnation remedies. Uh, the problem was that as a practical matter, this rule precluded assertion of takings claims in federal court under Section 1983, which is the universal statute uh, that gives everyone uh, a right to sue in federal court for federal constitutional and some statutory violations. Uh, because the court held in uh, a subsequent case following on Williamson County called San Remo uh, that when you pursued your inverse condemnation remedy, which Williamson County required you to do, and you got a decision of the state court, uh, that decision precluded relitigation of your takings claim under Section 1983. So the two decisions combined basically said you never can get a federal court determination of your takings claim. That's as a result of race judicata yeah. principles. 
as a result of race judicata. So a claim and issue preclusion as a result of the state court final judgment. So the reality was, unlike every other claim under the Constitution, uh, you couldn't bring your takings claim under in federal court. And not surprisingly, when you're forced to go to state court, and remember, in many, many states, state court judges are elected, uh, it's awfully hard to convince the state court to give you compensation for the state statute uh, or regulation. Most state courts would strain to find no taking. And takings doctrine, it's not as if in many situations it's cut and dried. And so the real-world implications of this decision were takings claims were very substantially disadvantaged compared to almost every other claim under the Constitution. So what happened... Uh, with respect to Mrs. Nick, is after she was told she would have to couldn't get an injunction in state court, she filed a, a 1983 case in federal court. Not surprisingly, that case was dismissed under Williamson County, uh, but her case came to the Supreme Court, uh, posing the question: Should Williamson County be overturned because of this significant disfavoring of takings claims compared to every other kind of constitutional claim? And the court did uh, overturn Williamson County holding that a property owner has a takings claim as soon as the government takes the property without paying for it, and the availability of those inverse condemnation decisions uh, doesn't obviate the fact that a taking has occurred. Five to four, uh, the sort of usual conservative liberal split on the court, uh, a spirited dissent from Justice Kagan. Uh, but I think it's worth um, pointing out a few things uh, in the opinion that the Chief Justice wrote for the court. Uh, first of all, what he said is our cases are pretty clear that the taking occurs as soon as the property is taken and you don't need this subsequent proceeding because the law is quite clear that if there is a taking, interest is owed uh, from the day the taking occurs. And he said that wouldn't be true if the taking was the decision not to award compensation, then decision then comp, uh, interest would only be owed from some later point. So totally inconsistent with the court's cases. Uh, and I think both the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan have good turns of phrases. The Chief Justice said, a bank robber might give the loot back, but he still robbed the bank. The availability of a subsequent compensation remedy for a taking uh, no more means that there never was a constitutional claim in the first case than the availability of a damages action uh, renders negligent conduct compliant with the duty of care. So he was pretty clear that what we're talking about here is the fact that the state provides a compensation remedy for its unconstitutional action doesn't preclude the federal remedy from applying as well. Uh, the other interesting thing that the chief did uh, was to look back at some old case law involving this question uh, and pointed out that Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall, in some early opinions, had taken the position that the taking occurs immediately uh, when the, upon the government action and doesn't depend on compensation. And I think he wanted to show uh, that this was not some new invention uh, of the current majority, but it was a strain of thought uh, that quite liberal members of the court had thought about for a long time. Uh, I think part, another passage in the opinion sort of captures, I think, what was really going on here, which was uh, that the takings clause shouldn't be a poor relation to the other provisions of the Bill of Rights. And I think there was a real view that uh, the court under 1983 has said generally there is no exhaustion remedy for state remedies. You don't have to exhaust any state remedy before you can bring your 1983 claim. And it was irrational uh, to have this uh, exception only for property rights. Uh, the chief did go out of his way to say that 
uh, injunctive relief may not be available, depending on the availability of damages. And my guess is there'll be some spirited litigation about exactly what that language means. Uh, but I think that it, it is not hyperbole to say this is a very significant change in how uh, property rights claims are going to be litigated going forward. Mike Kennan, anything to add to that? Uh, no, I fully agree. Uh, Williamson County had created this very weird catch-22, and I think the court was mopping it up in a way to make, as Andy's already indicated, it clear that the taking clause is not the red-headed stepchild of the Bill of Rights, and it right. should be treated the same as other. Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, I think that the argument for overruling Williamson County was was pretty powerful, but this case sort of got sucked into the ongoing broader phony war about sorry decisis <laughs> and whether, uh, you know, what standard the court should apply in this battle between the more conservative and more liberal members of the court about that. I think this was sort of an odd case in which to have that fight because I do think that there were some very good both first principles and pragmatic arguments as to why Williamson County just didn't work in light of the San Remo decision. Um, but um, again, there was obviously a broader debate about that looking forward to fights to come. And I think that that ended up amping up the temperature in this case beyond what it otherwise would have been. That's a good point. I'll just quickly add, you didn't see the spirit of defense of precedent in the Cross case, which pretty much shows that Lemon is not viewed as precedent like other kinds of precedent. So, and you certainly also saw that spirited debate about sorry, decisis, its significance, or lack thereof, and other opinions uh, as well. Uh, so, Mike, another uh, a case or issue that the court has wrestled with over the years is uh, whether political gerrymandering was constitutional or not. Uh, so, if you could talk about the Rucho case, that would be great. Yeah, so the, this political gerrymandering issue has come up constantly over the last 30 years, whether or not political gerrymandering is unconstitutional and more to the point, is there some judicially manageable neutral standard by which you can separate out permissible use of politics and gerrymandering versus uh, impermissible stuff that goes too far. Two cases were actually presented. One was in North Carolina, where was it alleged that the Republicans gerrymandered the Democrats, and the other case involved a particular district in Maryland where the Democrats had, had gerrymandered the Republicans. Uh, this kept coming up like Lemon, you know, a Frankenstein monster that would continue to emerge. The court had never struck down a case on political gerrymandering grounds. In this case in 2005 called Veith, they pretty much said, Scalia said, look, there's just no standard here. We can't go forward. Justice Kennedy said, well, I can't think of a standard, and you can't think of a standard, but, you know, there's a lot of smart maybe. people out there. <laughs> Why don't you go litigate it for 20 years, on, and maybe somebody will come up with a clever idea. Um, and uh, <laughs> now we've seen that that was a fool's errand because nobody's been able to come up with any kind of cognizable standard. And that's what the court went off on 5-4, that there are no judicially manageable standards for separating how much politics is too much politics, uh, from others, and that's completely true. It's exemplified by, for example, all the dissents in Veith and here can't articulate a rational standard. Uh, in fact, they've articulated five different standards which are at, at, at war uh, with each other. Uh, the point I'd like to make is while that's all well and good as a matter of uh, whether or not something is susceptible to judicial resolution is a political or non-political question. I don't think there's any constitutional right involved here, and I think that's what made the majority opinion that much easier to write, which is you've obviously got a right to vote, and your right to vote counts. It has to count as much as everybody else's. 
but everybody who voted in all these states was their the percentage of their electorate was the same as everybody else's so the votes were equally weighted what they were really arguing for was well one of two things one is i've got a right to win the election i've got a right to have the guy i voted for uh prevail and that's of course ridiculous as i live in the district of columbia and can tell you if i had a constitutional right like that it would be violated <laughs> uh, uh every day so what they're really saying is not, to, and also it makes no sense from a redistricting perspective, a, a packed district is one where you, the classic gerrymandering, if you're Republicans or gerrymandering, is to make the Democratic district 75% to 80% Democratic and then make the uh, Republican districts less so you can spread out and get more uh, seats and votes. Uh, so if you took this seriously, that I've got this district-specific analysis, that would mean in a packed Democratic district, which clearly hurts Democrats, the only people who would have a cause of action would be the Republicans because they can't win in a packed Democratic district. So you can't analyze these questions in any logical way from a district-specific perspective. And at the end of the day, all of these theories revolve around I've got some group right to quasi-proportional representation in the legislature. Uh, the amount of votes I get for my candidates, party's candidates, have to be roughly commensurate with the amount of seats that that yields. And if you don't do it, that's uh, some kind of problem. But as the court has said countless times, I think every justice who's looked at this has said is there's no group right to quasi-proportional representation in the legislature. And since every measure of a discriminatory effect in a gerrymandering case is going to be some variation of that, uh, then you're really just not even articulating uh, a claim. And, and if... Uh, and that tradition continues. The problem in these cases has never been able to figure out whether the legislature had a political motive when they drew the lines. I always said, do politicians care about politics? Do bankers care about money? Yeah, that's going to be a factor, and the court has constantly recognized that that, even if it's just incumbency protection, is going to be part and parcel of any redistricting scheme. The issue's always been, well, how much of a negative effect is too much? And that's where nobody has been able to articulate a standard. Justice Kagan tried in dissent, but she really came up woefully inadequate. She said, well, they ran 3,000 plans, and they were all more, uh, and they didn't consider politics, and they were all less favorable to Republicans than the one the Republicans did. Well, first of all, that's got nothing to do with effect. That's intent. Yeah, it hardly surprises me that a, a redistrictor that paid no attention to politics is going to be less favorable than one that paid attention to politics. But again, the question is, well, how much worse does it have to be for you to make this cognizable? And there, Justice Kagan was like Justice Stewart in the pornography cases. Uh, we'll know it when we see it to figure out what's obscenity versus pornography. I will also make the point, well, I'm going to make a couple of points here because it's the last time. I'm, this is now entirely academic. It's not just that there's a judicially, no judicially manageable standards here, but this has been the most egregious abuse of normal political science. What has become conventional wisdom among the federal judiciary about redistricting is wrong at every turn, and I'll just explain quickly why that is. Let's start with this 3,000 plan thing that Justice Kagan ballyhooed. Well, the supposedly neutral standards for these plans were compactness and contiguity. Well, con they're all contiguous, so that's a non-factor. Compactness is, if anything, less 
judicially manageable than pornography because nobody what knows what it means. In other words, you tell me to draw a compact disc, uh, 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 3,000 plans with compactness, I can draw 3,000 plans that are more pro-Republican than what the legislature came up with. So that's sort of a, non, a non-starter. Uh, but what they didn't do, and Justice Kagan tried to embrace the notion of, of the standards that have been articulated in the lower courts. Well, the standards that have been articulated in the lower courts is effect. But again, they don't provide any definition of effect that makes any sense or is anything different than proportional representation. Um, all right, here's why it's terrible political science, okay? In the 80s, uh, the Justice Department, when Andy and I were there, took the very, uh, the gerrymanders, the uh, Republicans were getting gerrymandered across the country, and this case called Bandimer came up. And we were pushed very hard by the Republican National Committee and others to come in and say that this was judicially cognizable. But the Reagan Justice Department said, look, there's no judicially manageable standards here. So in the 80s, it was the Republicans who were being, being hurt by gerrymandering. Now the new conventional wisdom is, well, um, yeah, but we need to get involved now because gerrymandering is a lot worse than it was in the 1980s. But that's demonstrably untrue by every objective benchmark. For example, the Veith case that I was talking about and the Bandemer case that I was talking about, the notion that you can sustain a gerrymander throughout the decades is just not true. In the Veith case, they assured the court in 2005 with absolute certainty that the 12 Republican, 7 Democratic uh, division that had occurred under that plan was going to persist throughout the decade. Two elections later, it was 12 Democratic, 7 Republican. In other words, it had been completely reversed. So the notion that all these sophisticated computers can lock in gerrymanders in a way that never occurred before is demonstrably untrue. It's not, you don't have to look at individual states, just look at Congress. Two years ago, we had, what, 235 Republicans and 190-whatever Democrats. Now we've got 236 Democrats in the House and 196 or so Republicans, meaning that you have had a dramatic shift. Supposedly, Justice Kagan says this 2010 redistricting was uniquely, uh, had entrenched all of these majorities, but we see that actually uh, the, the House is more responsive to political changes than it ever has been in its history. We've had more swaps of uh, majorities in the House since the 1990s when redistricting supposedly became so entrenched than we've ever had uh, before that. 53% of the Senate where there's no redistricting involved is Republican. 45% of the House where there is redistricting is Republican. So if they are gerrymandering, they're the worst gerrymanders that uh, any, anybody's ever seen. My final point, I guess, in terms of uh, the other argument you always hear is, gee, our horribly polarized system is a result of redistricting. Now everybody's in safe seats so they can, a Republican can appeal to the Republican base and the Democrats can appeal to the Democrat base and nobody ever has to compromise. Well, I, I fully agree with the disease, but it's obviously not caused by redistricting. Because if you're going to successfully get more seats than votes, you can't have safe Republican districts if the Republicans are the gerrymanders, right? You can't pack yourself into safe districts. You have to pack the other side, give yourself like 53, 54% Republican districts so you can spread out Republican voters for more seats. It's just 
arithmetic. So it can't possibly be that we've got these safe districts. And the reason that we've seen this shift from last year is because that's precisely what the classic gerrymandering strategy is. Give yourself relatively thin majorities, give the other side packed majorities, but when you give yourself relatively thin majorities, if you fail to predict the electorate or their swings in the electorate, you're going to turn a Republican seat into a, a Democratic seat. So the notion that political polarization is caused by redistricting and that this is all entrenched uh, 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 these days compared to the old days is demonstrably untrue, even though it is conventional wisdom um, in the judiciary. My final point, because I was litigating this case, I was defending the, uh, the alleged gerrymander by Michigan Republicans, and uh, the entire argument was uh, you got nine Republicans and five Democrats, and that's grossly disproportionate. It should be 7-7 in a 50-50 state. Well, just like I said last time, we got shellacked, so it was seven Republican, seven Democrat. And we went to the three-judge court and said they've achieved exactly what they said we should achieve. The three-judge court, which Justice Kagan cites favorably in her opinion, went ahead to say, no, uh, we're not going to believe the actual election results. We're just going to believe what these models tell us, and under those models, this would be an unfair redistricting, and nonetheless struck down a seven-Republican, seven-Democrat uh, seat plan, which illustrates exactly the problem with injecting the judiciary into this political thicket. I know there's no such thing as Obama judges and Trump judges, but the more cynical among us might think that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, the Florida Supreme Court, uh, this Michigan panel that uh, I argued in front of, what you're actually substituting is a judicially mandated political gerrymander for a legislative gerrymander, which again, to get back to my prior point, will only decrease uh, respect for the court as an apolitical actor rather than just another participant in this relatively ugly business. So I want to make sure that we have time to get to, yeah. to Kaiser, and I, and I also want to hear, before we yield the stage, uh, your views about the first year of Justice Kavanaugh, but that having been said, do you have anything that you really just dying to say? I think say we about should Rufo? get to Kaiser. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would add just one point, and it actually will be one point on this, sure. um, which is that um, I, it, it is really striking that the court did not really say anything about whether or not there is, in fact, a constitutional violation here. As Mike said, there are perfectly respectable arguments as to why there's no constitutional problem, either under the First or the Fourteenth Amendment. It bears remembering that this practice is named after Elbridge Gerry, one of the first governors of Massachusetts, who was notorious for engaging in this conduct, and yet no one at the time, shortly after the framing, thought that this was constitutionally problematic. And because the court decided to decide this essentially on the procedural ground of the political question doctrine rather than engaging on the substance, it allowed Justice Kagan, in the dissenting opinion, to say, not without force, look, no one's disputing that there's a constitutional problem here, and yet you're saying that we're powerless to do anything about it, which I thought rhetorically was a pretty effective move on her part, and it largely stemmed from the fact that in that majority of five justices, there were clearly some members of that majority who were unwilling to state what Mike stated, that there is, in fact, no constitutional problem with 
partisan gerrymandering. Interesting. Can, can I make one last selfish point? Which make it quick. <laughs> my support for this opinion demonstrates vividly what a selfless patriot I am. <laughs> because if they had allowed any kind of gerrymandering theory to go forward, I would have made at least $25 million in attorney fees defending all of these different gerrymanders across the country. So, well, I think the good news for Mike is this litigation probably moves to state courts. <laughs> my guess is there'll be a lot of it. I think... <laughs> Line drawing's a problem. We talked about the takings case. We talked about the establishment clause case. Line drawing's a problem for courts, but they managed to get over it in other areas. All right. I, I think it's Kaiser is too important a case to, to okay, not well, talk I about. Can, so let's do it quickly. And I will summarize Kaiser succinctly. This is the, uh, the case on deference to administrative agencies, and in particular on the question of whether administrative agencies get deference when they are interpreting their own regulations. This is a form of deference known variously as seminal rock or our deference after the two Supreme Court decisions that had articulated this doctrine, the latter of which was written by Justice Scalia at a time when conservatives were more concerned about judicial interpretations than administrative ones. But over the last uh, 30 years or so, the pendulum has swung, and uh, uh, given concerns about the growth of the administrative state, I think that a number of uh, critics have rightly pointed out that the uh, seminal rock or our doctrine stands on uh, dubious uh, underpinnings. Uh, there is a lot to be said for the argument that if an agency is construing its own regulations and there's ambiguity in those regulations, what the agency should in fact do is amend its regulations. And so this case came to the Supreme Court on uh, the question of whether or not Seminole Rock and Auer should be overruled. That was literally the first question presented in uh, the cert petition. This was a case involving veterans' benefits. A veteran had been denied benefits based on uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs interpretation of, I think, the word relevant in a regulation. And, and it really presented the case squarely with the question of whether or not to overrule those two cases. And the court ultimately decided not to do so in a five to four uh, what was effectively a five to four opinion, though everyone thought that what took place in the lower courts in this case was incorrect. Uh, but in, in a majority opinion written by Justice Kagan uh, and joined by the other Democratic appointees on the court, plus the Chief Justice. And what Justice Kagan ended up doing was essentially sort of tightening the screws of the Auer Doctrine and essentially suggesting that uh, courts applying the Auer Doctrine uh, should do so much more strictly. They should only uh, afford deference when a regulation is genuinely ambiguous and, and required the agency to be acting in an area of expertise and to offer uh, a reasoned explanation for its position. Uh, and essentially, uh, the effect of that was to leave our in place, but potentially very much to limit its application in much the same way that I think that the Supreme Court has recently been doing with regard to Chevron doctrines, uh, deference, the doctrine that applies when an agency is interpreting an ambiguous statute. Justice Gorsuch uh, uh, really sort of took the lead, I think, for the four uh, who disagreed with that view and sort of suggesting that the court should have gone further and overruled uh, our, uh, the Chief Justice wrote an opinion saying, look, if this majority opinion is applied as I think it should be, there may not actually be very much space between the majority opinion and Justice Gorsuch's uh, separate opinion. 
But I think the real problem in this area is that if the court does not overrule uh, decisions in this area of uh, deference in administrative law, it allows lower courts to engage in a fair amount of mischief. And it's going to be interesting to see if in the coming years we see that sort of mischief where lower courts basically say, look, if, as long as the Supreme Court doesn't overrule these decisions uh, providing for deference, we are going to continue to do, do that. And I think that this opinion does give mischievous lower courts the opportunity to do that. And it's going to be really interesting to see sort of the interplay between lower courts and the Supreme Court, and in particular the interplay between the D.C. Circuit, which I think is somewhat out of alignment with the Supreme Court, uh, and uh, the court uh, in this area if, for instance, majorities on the D.C. Circuit continue to afford deference uh, fairly liberally. And so I think that's sort of the area to watch going forward, both with regard to our deference and with regard to Chevron deference. I think, quite frankly, this decision was um, something of a setback for those of us who believe that these deference doctrines are on uh, questionable underpinnings. Um, But we'll see what ends up happening uh, with the Supreme Court going forward. I think what we're going to see from the court itself is uh, a growing reluctance on the court's part to apply existing deference doctrines in cases where the court arguably could. And we've seen that already with regard to Chevron with the major issues doctrine and Chevron step zero, as it's been referred to, and the court's unwillingness to invoke Chevron even in cases where there are regulations. I think we'll see that with regard to our deference as well, at least from the Supreme Court. But the real question is, what are lower courts doing in this area? And I think we're just going to have to wait and see. All right. Well, we got up here a little bit late, so we'll, we'll go a little bit past 11. And, and my apologies, Andy, that we didn't get to the Gundy case. But I, I, I can't have you all leave the stage without offering your thoughts about, you know, Justice Kavanaugh's uh, first year uh, on the bench and, you know, sort of where the court is going. We've had a lot of major changes in personnel, two new justices over the last couple of years, and sort of your perspectives on what you are seeing. So in, in whatever order you want. Well, maybe I'll start, and I can sure. work Gundy into the oh, conversation. But I, I do think that the, the, the changes, you know, canon refer to the administrative state. And just two seconds, Gundy was about the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, it's a case uh, where uh, it was pretty clear. It was a, a case that was argued before Justice Kavanaugh was sitting, and so it was an eight-person court. And uh, basically, it was a three-one-four. A three-one-three. I'm sorry. I'm a four-one-three decision, uh, where Justice Alito indicated that with the three led by Justice Gorsuch, he'd be willing to reconsider the non-delegation doctrine, uh, but he didn't want to do it in this case. So, non-delegation obviously is what are the standards governing uh, determining whether Congress has improperly delegated legislative power to an agency. And uh, I think that is a question about administrative agency power, just like Kaiser. Uh, There are multiple questions that the court has looked at in recent years about separation of powers, other separation of powers limits, such as the appointment power for administrative agencies. There are questions in the adjudicatory context about what administrative agency ALJs can decide. And I think if you put all those things together, and it's relevant because obviously Judge Kavanaugh came to the court from the D.C. Circuit, which is sort of the primary administrative court, lots of questions about whether the current structure Uh, of the administrative state is going to survive constitutional scrutiny. And I guess I'd I'd raise one interesting question about that is what happens if it doesn't? What happens if under the next non-delegation case the court says we're going to apply a much tougher standard? 
in the world of the framers, that would have meant, well, each state would have regulated its own state. But in our current world, that gives very significant power to large states to fill the vacuum, see what California is doing in the privacy context. So I just think it's an interesting question about what comes after uh, a curtailment of the administrative state. The one thing I'd say about Justice Kavanaugh, just quickly, um, SCOTUS blog and other people do these voting statistics, who votes with whom. It's sort of interesting. If you, if you set... If you look at how often did Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg agree, that maybe that's the floor. That's about 50%. So uh, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh agreed 92% of the time. That's probably one of the two highest uh, in the table. And I guess I would point out the other interesting fact that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh agreed 70% of the time. So I think one thing that's clear is they are not aligned on many, many issues, which makes for an interesting court. Well, a fair number of them was in the group. You had criminal cases and then the Apple class action. Criminal case, case the Apple class action, uh, other cases involving vagueness doctrine in the immigration context. I, I think they're, and, and, my, uh, and I believe also uh, Native American cases. Oh, yes, it's the two, the two Indian tribe cases. Canon? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, a, you know, in many ways, I think the most interesting observation on what went on this year is the, the sort of disagreements between Justice uh, Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. And I think Justice Gorsuch in his first two years on the court seems to be more of a sort of Scalia Thomas style conservative and I think um, much more um, uh, uh, sort of assertive about uh, his view of textualism and originalism. I think Justice Kavanaugh has been you know, fairly cautious, which is perhaps not surprising given that this was his first year on the court. Um, but bigger cases are to come, and I think it's really going to be interesting to see when some of these bigger cases, particularly on separation of powers issues, come back to the court, where the court's going to be. We just filed a cert petition on the question of the constitutionality of the CFPB. That's an issue on which Justice Kavanaugh um, staked out a very clear position when he was Judge Kavanaugh on uh, the D.C. Circuit, and so it'll be interesting to see if the court grants review in that case what the court ends up doing. Um, I think that, uh, 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 you know, it, it, the voting patterns with uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh voting with the Chief Justice in particular are interesting because I think that that may reflect, again, a certain degree of caution as the new member on the court by Justice Kavanaugh, but it'll be interesting to see how his jurisprudence develops over time. On the separation of powers question that both Andy and Cannon raised, um, yes, we haven't seen a lot from Justice Kavanaugh but we saw a lot from Judge Kavanaugh, and as Andy pointed out, he had a lot of opportunity to do this in the D.C. Circuit. If I feel confident that uh, he'll take a strict view of any view, textualist view of the Constitution, meaning be very much in favor of separation of powers, my highest degree of confidence would be in that area for Justice Kavanaugh. Among other things, as Cannon points out, he wrote a very forceful – he wrote the dissenting opinion in this Free Enterprise Foundation case that – I argued about 14 years ago, and then he followed up on it in the CFPB case. So I think he'll take a very Scalia-like view, if you will, of separation of powers. And in terms of the big picture cases, uh, I think he, the ones we talked about, he got, in my view, all of them right. Cross, census, gerrymandering. So I think uh, generally he lived up to my hopes or expectations of him taking a uh, an originalist, textualist approach. There was this disagreement with Gorsuch. I don't know that it much mattered. It was, what, third-party standing in the antitrust, a Batson case. And then I think the rest of it was more that Justice Gorsuch has a very strong libertarian instinct that manifests itself in criminal cases or quasi-criminal cases that uh, Justice 
Kavanaugh presumably doesn't share. But I would think that would be, going forward, a relatively mild area of disagreement. I don't think you can attribute too much to this 30 percent gap in voting. But we'll see over the next couple of terms. Yeah, I certainly think that in terms of you know, maybe not replacing Justice Scalia with Justice Gorsuch, but you know, Justice Kennedy could hardly be described, described as, as an originalist or a strict textualist, and Kavanaugh is more. Yeah, and Justice Kennedy was such the libertarian. I mean, uh, you know, for good or ill, he was the the uh, probably the the stoutest um, defender of of individual liberties, uh, uh, real or perceived. And I think um, Justice Kavanaugh is is not that. And I think that that we have not really seen cases that sort of test that, um, but. Those cases will come to the court. I was going to say, we're going to see them next term. Those are going to be areas where I think um, uh, that change is really going to manifest itself. I'm also fairly confident we'll be seeing the three of you next term up up at the court. Please join me in thanking our panelists. We'll go ahead and get started. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. I'm a legal fellow here at Heritage. So we've just heard from an impressive panel of lawyers who have argued some of the biggest cases at the court. Now we'll hear from three of the top Supreme Court reporters in the nation. Theirs is not an easy task, trying to explain to the American people what the Supreme Court's complex and sometimes confusing opinions mean. The census case is a perfect example. Uh, This requires an equally profound knowledge of the court and its cases. We're fortunate to have with us today Jess Braven, Adam Liptak, and Richard Wolfe. In order to get to what our panelists have to say, I'll keep their introductions very brief. Uh, Jess Braven covers the Supreme Court uh, for the Wall Street Journal after early postings as United Nations correspondent and editor of the Wall Street Journal California Weekly. He's the author of the book Terror Courts, an award-winning account of military trials at Guantanamo Bay. Prior to joining the journal, Jess wrote for other publications such as the Washington Post, Harper's Bazaar, and Spy Magazine. Jess is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of California Berkeley Law School. Adam Liptak is the Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times. He began covering the court in 2008, and he also writes a column called Sidebar on developments in the law. Adam joined the New York Times as a copy boy after graduating from Yale University. He returned to Yale to receive his law degree and then practiced at one of the nation's premier First Amendment law firms. He returned to the Times legal department and spent a decade there advising the company on defamation, privacy, and other issues. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Business Weekly, and a number of leading law reviews. And our third panelist is Richard Wolf. He's the Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today. He has reported on all three branches of the federal government over the past three decades, including five years at the White House and 10 years in Congress. He's covered the court and legal affairs since 2012. His prior beats include national politics, economics, domestic policy, and health care. Before joining USA Today, Rich was a Washington correspondent for Gannett News Service and a reporter and editor at newspapers in New York. He's a graduate of Boston University and swears that the judiciary will be his last branch. So with that, I want to pick up on what the last panel ended with, which was an assessment of Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, So Jess... You wrote that the two two newest members of the court, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, carved out distinct identities this term. Uh, They also disagreed in 20 cases, which is uh, a quarter of the docket. So do you find this trend surprising? And uh, talk a little bit about some of their biggest areas of disagreement. You know, uh, it was not surprising because uh, these were areas 
that didn't have to do with the overall direction of the law, but the specific approach to particular issues. And if you've read a lot of opinions by both uh, uh, justices on the lower court and followed uh, the things that they've talked about, uh, it really was not a shock to see the areas where they disagreed. But some cases might have been surprising. I mean, some uh, you know that that stand out. I mean, certainly you know we talked about the the uh, the Apple case where. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, agreed with a <clears throat> with a more liberal wing that there was a potential antitrust violation uh, with the uh, with the uh, the Apple um, App Store. Uh, some of the ones that that really stuck out, though, I thought was one was uh, the uh, the Indian Reservation case from Wyoming, where Justice Gorsuch uh, joined Justice Sotomayor's opinion that gave teeth to a 19th century treaty that the uh, United States signed with uh, the uh, the uh, uh, um, was it the Crow Indian tribe. Rich, Rich. Uh, and while while Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh was among the dissenters, and some people point out that uh, you know uh, Justice Gorsuch had more experience dealing with Indian cases on the Tenth Circuit, which includes you know Colorado and Wyoming, Oklahoma. Uh, Although you kind of could imagine that cuts either way. Uh, You know, having experience with those types of cases doesn't mean you're necessarily sympathetic to uh, Indian tribal rights, but he certainly was more experienced with them. Uh, on the other hand, we saw uh, an opinion that uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh wrote, one that obviously meant a, a great uh, deal to him in the Flowers case from Mississippi, uh, reversing the, uh, the murder conviction uh, based on the, the prosecutor's uh, repeated uh, violations of, of Batson and, you might say, the totality of circumstances over six trials where uh, nearly every uh, black potential juror was dismissed. And... Um, <coughs> Justice Kavanaugh, who had written about the Batson pres- uh, precedent when he was a student at Yale Law School, uh, very strongly favored it, uh, thought it was a very good idea, quoted uh, Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall in that Law Review piece. Uh, for him, this was almost a, a perfect way to, to uh, put uh, uh, force into beliefs he developed uh, many years earlier. Uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, joined almost all of Justice Thomas's dissent and that dissent was really quite furious. I mean, it essentially accused the majority of ignoring the law to take part in some kind of uh, feel-good exercise uh, to let some uh, some obviously guilty uh, killer uh, get off the, the, the hook because uh, podcasters were, were pressuring uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court. Uh, the one, th- the one only section of that opinion that uh, uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch did not join was the one where Justice Thomas called the validity of the Batson rule uh, into question altogether. Uh, he, he he didn't uh, go that far, uh, but it was uh, you know it was interesting to see you know very different uh, approaches uh, on on cases with a lot of you know uh, beyond the specific facts, kind of you know deeper. Social significance when it comes to the you know history of uh, of the United States. As a podcaster myself, I'd love to know that we're uh, influencing the Supreme Court. Your um, podcast may. I think. <laughs> um, Adam, you wrote that Justice Kavanaugh played the crucial role in the balance of power at the court. He was in the majority eighty-one percent of the time in divided cases, more than any other justice. So, do you think he's emerging as the new swing vote, or is it too early to tell? Well, of course, it's too early to tell, but. It's not commonplace either for the freshman justice to be the median justice as Justice Kavanaugh was by a very small margin over the chief, but still the last time, and I don't mean to strike terror in your hearts, 
But the last time this happened was in 1990 when David Souter joined the court. <laughs> um, to, to follow up on a couple of uh, Jess's points, I, I do think there are several things going on here, and some of, some of them are, are quite good. Um, the person on the street may think that two Trump appointees, particularly ones that went to the same prep school together, particularly ones that served on the Supreme Court in the same term together for the same justice, Justice Kennedy, and who were turned out to be respected appeals court uh, judges and, and favorites of conservative groups, are not cookie cutters. They're, 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 they are their own men, and that's a good look for a court where, uh, and the press may be to blame by focusing on the 5-4 decisions all the time, they do have distinctive approaches. Justice Gorsuch is surely a more committed originalist than, than Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, at argument, is often searching for the workable solution. Justice Gorsuch is searching for the uh, solution required by the framers. And sometimes there's daylight between them. Uh, in a marine arbitration case, marine injury asbestos case, Justice Kavanaugh was perfectly willing to embrace a three-part test, and Justice Gorsuch said those tests are anathema to him. But as I say... That's a good thing, not a bad thing, because what people want to see in the Supreme Court is independent judging, not reflexive political action. Um, well, maybe, uh, I, the, I, the last thing I'd say is you can't read a whole lot into a first term and that it's common for justices who will later drift right to appear more moderate in their early terms, and that was true uh, according to political science data of Justices Thomas and Gorsuch as well. So this is early days. So, Rich, you suggest another candidate for the new swing vote, the, the Chief Justice, and you wrote that he is the man in the middle both literally and figuratively. Uh, could you talk about some of his swing votes, particularly from the court's um, so-called shadow docket? Sure. I, I don't think that um, it's an original thought. I, I wouldn't claim it as my own that uh, Chief Justice Roberts is now the middle of the court. I think probably we all agree on that. Um, just quickly backtracking to Kavanaugh, I think it is true that um, I, I wrote a story sort of halfway or a little more than halfway through the term saying that Roberts and Kavanaugh sort of had a bromance going, that Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh appeared to be the, the chief justice's wingman on a lot of cases. That was at a time when I think there had been 25 merits decisions and they had agreed on 24 of them. So I think it is true. I agree with everything that Jess and Adam said, but I think it is true that Kavanaugh was um, – a very different justice than uh, Justice Gorsuch was this year and and different from Justice Gorsuch's very uh, forceful first year on the court. But Roberts clearly, um, with maybe an addendum of Kavanaugh or the swing votes, Roberts in particular, on the shadow docket, my recollection is, and guys jump in if I'm forgetting some of these, um, Roberts uh, sided with the liberals on blocking the lower court on the, I guess it was Fifth Circuit, on the Louisiana abortion case, uh, which will probably come back on the merits docket at some point, but he uh, was willing to uh, stay that um, decision for the time being. Uh, Planned Parenthood funding, uh, defunding Planned Parenthood uh, was another shadow docket item, and I think he and Kavanaugh together sided with the liberals on that. Uh, I think Roberts alone with the liberals um, blocked uh, uh, President Trump on his uh, asylum ban, uh, trying to, this was when that caravan was heading toward the United States, and uh, the president came up with a policy that said if, if you, you have to cross at one of the official crossings, 
otherwise, um, uh, no rights to cross, and I think uh, Roberts stayed that one as well. Uh, there was a per curiam, doesn't really qualify maybe as shadow, but um, on the case that had come from Texas twice on a prisoner who um, had an intellectual disability, it had gotten sent back the first time um, with sort of directions to the lower court, and it came back with the lower court having basically just ignored those directions, and Roberts uh, basically said, um, you know, we're not going to, we're going to save this prisoner, um, uh, having, uh, you know, not even willing to um, uh, hear it on the merits. Um, and then the original um, census case, this was the one where um, it had to do with de deposing Commerce Secretary Ross and uh, Deputy or Assistant AG. Um, and uh, the court, I think, Kavanaugh and Roberts together on this one with the liberals um, came up with sort of a compromise and said uh, that they would be willing to allow one of those depositions to go forward. The three more conservative justices on the court said no. They would have blocked the whole case. And then that case kind of got subsumed by the larger census case that, uh, as we know today, is still ongoing and will be ongoing in the Rose Garden later. So those are just some of the examples. Adam, Jess, anything to add on Chief Justice Roberts? I think the chief does have conflicting impulses. The court went through some tough times as a consequence of the recent confirmation battles, and that did damage to the court's authority, prestige, and legitimacy. And, you know, as Mike Carvin was saying, there are different ways to think about how you react to a, a blow to your legitimacy. Uh, do you, as he would say, simply apply the law, um, but in a way that the five Republican appointees are consistently uh, voting the four Democratic appointees? Or do you try to convey that the court is apolitical by scrambling the coalitions? And I think at the margins, uh, the Chief Justice probably takes account of both considerations. He's fundamentally a conservative judge, but he's also the custodian of the Supreme Court's reputation. And I think all of that figures into his thinking in a way that maybe would not have if he had been an associate justice on the court. As you will recall, he was initially nominated to be to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So I do think uh, the chief has particularly complicated uh, questions to address. Anything, Jess? Uh, <clears throat> no, I, th I think that's right. I mean, uh, the... Uh, uh, you know, he's, he, he seems uh, to believe that uh, that... Uh, the court's uh, legitimacy uh, requires some uh, greater, uh, some level of respect given to uh, the, you know, the minority's uh, views. And so uh, on, on occasion, he seems to bend over backwards to, uh, to uh, uh, try to, to recognize those. But, uh, you know, there's a, you know, there's a longer, longer game, I guess, that he has over, you know, how his court is viewed and remembered and a responsibility as well to the uh, uh lower court judges that he oversees as head of the whole judicial branch. And uh, I think he has, you know, pressures and uh, a need to respond to their interests as well that the associate justices don't have. And, of course, we remember his striking statement from November responding to President Trump's criticism of a ruling against him as having been issued by an Obama judge and uh, taking issue with that, which was quite unusual for uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who... Uh, does not ordinarily uh, get in the midst of public fights like that. That was actually the asylum case that I referred to earlier, I think, was um, uh, a judge, one of the judges from California, Ninth Circuit judge, and uh, 
Robert, uh, Trump, President Trump referred to that judge as an Obama judge, and that got that whole conversation started. So, Jess, the, the court shut the door on partisan gerrymandering claims, at least in federal court. Um, given how unpopular partisan gerrymandering tends to be these days, uh, where do you, what do you think will happen during the next round of redistricting? Um, well, I think that what will, it will happen uh, is what happens in every round of redistricting, which is that the, uh, the people who draw the maps will, will push them in their favor as, as far as they think they can, they can get away with. Uh, and that would have been what they uh, would have done even had there been some kind of uh, limit placed under, under the, the federal constitution on, on what they can do. Uh, however, the, you know, there are factors that are going to influence that, and as, as the, the past panel you know, wisely observed, uh, you know, a lot of action is going to move to the state courts, and probably uh, nearly every state constitution has something similar to the elections clauses that are in the federal constitution, and we have seen before the Supreme Court's uh, decision in this case a kind of consensus developing uh, both among the lower federal courts and state courts that... Uh, extreme partisan gerrymanders could be uh, uh, remediated through litigation. I mean, the Supreme Court is sort of out of step with what all the other courts uh, were, were going, uh, where they were going in this direction. So uh, it seems that uh, that, that action uh, may continue, and I don't think there was anything in the majority's opinion that would cause uh, those lower courts or those separate state courts to think, hey, we're getting this totally wrong. Um, the, uh, there also will be, I think, some you know, potential legislative action uh, in this area. But I don't think we should say that you know, we should foreclose forever the uh, idea that the Supreme Court or the federal courts will do something about this because you know, uh, the, the famous uh, political thicket line came out of Colgrove versus Green in 1946 where the court uh, shut the door to reviewing uh, redistricting, and that was in a very extreme uh, case from Illinois involving districts that had been left uh, unaltered for decades and decades and decades. And then in 1962, uh, in a similar case, uh, I guess I think from Tennessee, the uh, Supreme Court uh, revisited that issue uh, in Baker versus Carr and decided that it was justiciable uh, after all. And one thing is sort of interesting to, to do is if you look at the, the conference notes, you saw that the exact same argument that uh, that Justice Frankfurter and Justice Douglas had in 1946 over the Colgrove case, uh, you know, uh, Frankfurter says it's just too complicated, it's too risky. Let's just stay out of it. We can't cure every problem in the world. And Douglas saying, you know, just because something's you know hard doesn't mean we should you know shirk our duty to address it. They say the exact same thing almost 20 years later in the in the conference, except the votes had somewhat shifted. So, uh, looking at how you know. Looking at this case, looking at the fact that this issue will continue to develop over future years, you know, maybe there will be uh, another uh, day for the court to look at this uh, as well. Do you think there's likely to be more of a push in more states to have independent commissions? That has been uh, a popular uh, trend, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, not every state allows voter initiatives. Those that allow them, I think we are going to see that push. And we have seen that push in Arizona and California and and, and some other states. Uh, but not every state allows that mechanism. And so you'll have a situation where uh, the people who currently have that power will have the option to 
give it away to some independent body, and you know that's that doesn't tend to happen. Uh, you know, the Maryland situation is kind of uh, interesting to look at. You have that—that that was the, the, you know, the 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 mirror image case where you had a Democratic gerrymander, and you have a Republican governor in Maryland, Larry Hogan, who's very much against uh, gerrymandering, and he wants to set up an independent commission to take over from the legislature the the map drawing, and the legislature said, "Fine, we're on board with that, Larry." Just as soon as the other six states next to us do the same thing, like Virginia, Pennsylvania, you know, any of the, sort of North Carolina, all these other states that have uh, Republican-controlled or Republican-influenced map drawing, if they turn over their line drawing to independent commission, we'll do it too. And the, you know, the governor's response was, "Well, why do we have to wait for everyone else before we do the right thing?" You know, and so that's that's sort of the back and forth, and that was. I think, kind of the argument for why there has to be some national standard. But uh, if politicians, you know, if you have a lot of insurgents elected to state legislatures uh, who are running against the system and make that part of their platform, if that helps them win, uh, assuming they don't reconsider the issue once they actually get in power, uh, just as uh, the Chief Justice reconsidered the idea of term limits for for federal judges, um, you know, maybe maybe that will take effect. Rich, Adam, any thoughts? Well, just briefly, it was obvious that um, during the oral argument, uh, I think uh, Justice Kavanaugh in particular was citing all the action in the states. I think Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts did as well, or possibly that was last year. But he was talking. Uh, uh, these cases come back every year, apparently. But um, you know, not there was anymore. a lot. Yeah. There was a, well, not anymore for a while, anyway. Um, there, there was a lot of talk about. I think Kavanaugh said, "Is this really the time with all the action in the states?" And that was the one thing that had me thinking. Maybe they wouldn't rule as firmly as they did. I'll admit that I was a little bit surprised in the end that they shut the door because it did seem like a lot of justices were sort of citing things that could change. Um, you know, action in the states, and just mentioned there are se- several states uh, that can't take that action. Uh, there was talk of what happens, you know, the talk about the United Nations, talk about international. And a lot of that talk seemed to me to be, say, to be laying the groundwork for let's not do it yet. Uh, obviously, there would have been three or more justices who were ready to pounce the way the the way that five ultimately did. But I did think that it was a little bit surprising that uh, the door was slammed shut. The other thing that lurks in the background is that these independent commissions might be sub- subject to constitutional attack. When the Arizona Commission got to the court, it barely squeaked by. It got a 5-4 majority and a very strong dissent, I think, from the chief, in which he said the Constitution commits... Uh, redistricting to legislatures, the word legislatures, and that doesn't include uh, public referenda. And it's not clear with new personnel at the court that the court might not be willing to revisit that ruling. So, Adam, let's stick with you and turn to the Peace Cross case. Uh, You explained that the fractured majority uh, differed mostly over how sweeping the ruling should be with regard to the Lemon Test. So where do you think the test stands now and Uh, Did the court provide enough guidance for lower court judges going forward? Whenever the court issues seven opinions, you can bet that they didn't provide enough guidance to the lower courts. And I completely agree with Mike Carvin that this was an enormous missed opportunity. I mean, Lemon has been in the crosshairs for a long time. Scalia wrote about it that it's like a ghoul in a late-night movie, a horror movie that keeps popping up. And I count it the same way. I think there were six votes. Easy. Uh, to strike down Lemon, but they couldn't find, you know, put those six votes into a, a, a single opinion withholding. Um, but the Alito plurality, plurality certainly cast doubt on uh, what he mockingly called the grand unified theory 
of Lemon in all kinds of establishment clause cases. Uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch did what they could to say Lemon is dead. Uh, Kavanaugh writes, the Lemon test is not good law. And Gorsuch writes, Lemon was a misadventure and is now shelved. And Thomas refers to the long discredited test set forth in Lemon. So the votes are there, and why is a mechanical matter, as Mike was saying, they couldn't you know, all join part 4A1 and say uh, the Lemon test is dead is mysterious. Now that said, the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court is not going to be applying Lemon in future cases. The question is what message does it send to lower courts? And I think lower courts may not only want to, but feel compelled to apply a test that has not been formally overruled. Uh, so I think the, the Scalia metaphor is still with us, that uh, you know, this, is a, this is a ghoul that keeps popping up in, uh, in late-night horror movies. Rich, Jess, any thoughts on Lemon? Well, uh, I just want to say that uh, I, was, uh, I found uh, the, uh, the Alito uh, uh, majority opinion incredibly compelling because it cited an article I wrote. <laughs> Uh, which, See, and I, I drew just the opposite conclusion. Yeah, it's interesting, but 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 uh, but, but but I did think it was worth pointing out that the, the, the just just because of its its own interest, the the uh, you know dealt with the you know an aspect of the lemon test, you know, and it had to do with you know is there a secular you know purpose for the uh, you know uh, religious uh, device, and this was about Ten Commandment monoliths, and that and that article showed that. They actually were installed as a marketing effort for the 1956 movie by uh, Cecil B. DeMille. So uh, I thought that uh, I, was, I was pleased to see that uh, that moment of, of Hollywood history and, uh, and my uh, uh, only interview with uh, Charlton Heston uh, uh, recapitulated in, uh, in, in a Supreme Court footnote. So, <laughs> You know, I'll, I'll only add, I think we're at some point probably going to talk a little bit about next term. It, it just seems that um, one area where you don't have to be concerned about uh, the reliability of the conservative Supreme Court is in the area of religious liberty, religious freedom. And, you know, from oral arguments on, and this includes, in the oral arguments, this includes Justice Breyer, per, I can't remember specifically what Justice Kagan said during oral arguments, but it was obvious how this case was going to come out, and they just needed a way for it to come out. Next term, they've taken a case having to do with, and I'll probably butcher this, but it has to do with student aid um, to religious, uh, for religious schools. It's not direct. It's a Montana scholarship program that uh, might have been allowed to be used at all kinds of schools, but the Montana Supreme Court says that since it would be used for religious schools and since that would be in contravention of the Montana Supreme Court's version of the Blaine Amendment, they were going to disallow the program in its entirety. So that seemed like it was an easy grant, and I wouldn't be holding my breath to, to you know, guess on how that case comes out. And it just seems like that's an area where Justice Kavanaugh is pretty firm, where the five justices on the conservative side are pretty firm. Um, and so I just think... Now, that doesn't necessarily apply to... Well, we'll get to this, but cases that have a religious connotation but also have to do with, say, minority rights or gay and lesbian rights. Now, that gets into a more of a pick-your-side, but when it's purely should... Um, you know, there were some shadow docket issues this term, too. Uh, they didn't all come out that way, but they had to do with the praying coach 
uh, on the 50-yard line, uh, and there was another one, um, I'm forgetting the... Well, there was the surprise decision not to take a follow-on to Masterpiece Cake Shop. I would have thought they'd take it, and that, that goes to your, your very good point, that if there's an exception to their general interest in and commitment to, broadly speaking, religious liberty, it may be when it's a balancing between other kinds of rights. And we can probably get to that, but I think what they're doing there is they're going to they're going to take a, a different case, and instead of uh, having to look at a wedding cake again, they're going to look at wedding flowers. But um, we'll see. And we were hoping for a second helping of cake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Rich, let's stick with you. Uh, one theme of the past term was the stark division over stare decisis and how the court treats its past uh, precedents. There were a handful of cases asking the court to overrule a precedent. Justice Kagan has emerged as the primary cheerleader for stare decisis, while Justices Thomas and Gorsuch are apparently ready to throw out cases left and right. Uh, could you talk about the, the differences in their approaches? Well, I, I think the, the question pretty much outlines the differences in their approaches. Um, you have the, 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 the firm right of the court, Thomas um, Gorsuch and then Alito predominantly uh, not uh, having any hesitation to throw out uh, past decisions by the Supreme Court that they view as improperly decided. Um, you know, I think that there's a certain impatience even on their part um, to, to, to move ahead, particularly when they think that the minimalist uh, approach of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts is going to get there eventually, so why not get there now? I think what's most interesting is the other side um, uh, Justice Kagan has clearly emerged um, as the, uh, some might say, the leader of the liberal wing or the, or the forthcoming leader of the liberal wing uh, in general. But in this issue, um, she, Gundy wasn't really uh, a precedent case, but her dissent in Gundy and her dissent in Kaiser, uh, both of which have been talked about uh, by the previous panel, I think show that um, she's going to the mat on this issue, and I guess it's not surprising that she's going on the mat as a member of the court's minority wing rather than majority wing. Um, so uh, I think we're going to see that uh, continue in the future. I think that um, you know the four liberals on the court uh, see the trend. Um, you saw that in uh, Justice Breyer's dissent uh, and then Justice Kagan's dissent where they both said, well, what next, uh, twice in a row, and... Um, it's funny that I just said Roe because this all this all gets to the issue of Roe v. Wade, and I think that's what the the liberals on the court are worried about. Um, if it is if it is seen as something the court can do willy nilly in overruling their past precedents, then and some of these precedents go back forty and fifty years. Well, that that's in the ballpark of Roe v. Wade, which is what forty seven years or something like that. So I think this is all heading in that direction. Uh, and maybe I won't get ahead of ourselves, but um, that's going to be a, a more difficult uh, uh, ruling, I think, for the Supreme Court to uh, jet jettison. I don't think you're going to see this Supreme Court um, do anything major on abortion rights witness how they seem to be trying to avoid abortion rights cases when they can. Um, I think it really would probably take a 6-3 court uh, to get there because of um, Roberts's uh, a minimalist approach and unwillingness uh, to have the court seen as, as uh, political when it's five Republican appointees voting one way and four Democratic appointees voting the other. So yet this all points toward Roe. Um, uh, Justice Kagan clearly understands that, and, and the other liberals do too. And I think that's, that's the argument we're going to see going forward whenever there is a 
case having to do with a precedent. Yeah, uh, Roe v. Wade is certainly the elephant in the room whenever you're talking about stare decisis. But Adam, Jess, do you have any, any thoughts on this? It's sort of puzzling to me how heated these debates are over general law of stare decisis principles as though getting someone to commit in Nick or in Hyatt to some four-part test for stare decisis versus a three-part test for stare decisis is going to make a lick of difference to a justice committed to overruling or sustaining Roe v. Wade. Stare decisis factors are easily manipulable. And I, you know, fine, have the fight, make it seem like law. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you want to overrule something, you, you just you, re, you recite the factors in a way that's favorable to you. Yeah, depending on what you had for breakfast. <laughs> uh, well, Jess, let's stick with you. In, in Kaiser, uh, Justice Gorsuch accused the majority of pretending to abide stare decisis when it really significantly revised the underlying Seminole Rock Hour doctrine. Do you think he's right? And how do you think uh, Kagan's clarified deference doctrine will be applied by lower court judges? Well, I think that this this idea of deference also is one that's very malleable, as is you know stare decisis. Uh, you know, there there are all kinds of ways that that uh, you know what what one judge finds ambiguous, uh, another might not, which is something that uh, you know Justice uh, Kavanaugh has has pointed out. Uh, I think that the the sort of the 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 more interesting part of that opinion was not kind of the the, the technical. Uh, adjustment uh, and the many, many words she devoted to trying to explain what our deference actually has been all along and what it hasn't been all along, but the, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, larger context of, of what is the role of the, of the regulatory state. And I think that in terms of setting those boundaries, it's really going to, again, come down to the, the chief justice. You know, he's the one who wrote concurring opinion in this case. Uh, and I think that again, his uh, his sort of conservative instincts, but his interest in institutional stability, you know, may be uh, uh, in some conflict as as that uh, as that goes as that goes forward. So, uh, Adam, uh, Chief Justice Roberts suggests in in his Kaiser concurrence that Chevron deference may still be on the chopping block, even though the court declined to do away with our and Seminole Rock. Uh, and then Justice Alito suggested in his Gundy concurrence that the court may revisit the non-delegation doctrine in a future case. Do you think these are baby steps toward uh, more judicial oversight of the administrative state? Uh, the Roberts Court certainly has a an incremental approach to making big changes. I, I think that's absolutely right. This is a major project of the Roberts Court, but if something is a major project of the Roberts Court, at least when the Chief Justice is in control, uh, it's incremental and in measured steps, but this court is quite interested in all of these structural arguments. Uh, not only the chief, but Kavanaugh also said that whatever we can say about our, which was really substantially hollowed out, that was not a trivial decision. Uh, and the reason Kagan was able to attract the chief's vote was because she gave him so much. Uh, that uh, Chevron is either on the chopping block as such or will similarly be hollowed out uh, in a way that uh, it will rarely uh, be employed. Um, uh, the Gundy case, just as a technical voting matter, is really interesting. So, and, and Andy had the, the, the same issue. It was a 4-1-3. Plainly, it, it had gone 4-4. Uh, and if it goes 4-4, the court leaves the lower court judgment in place and nothing happens and no opinions are issued, 
And that would have had this very same effect as what happened. Because the sex offender would have lost, the law would have remained constant, every circuit in the country agreed uh, on the outcome. Uh, but Alito decides to write. And to what end? He's basically saying, I agree with the other side. That, you know, next case I'm voting with the other guys once we have a full court, once it's nine justices, not eight justices. And my theory is he did it to allow the writing of an opinion, namely Gorsuch's dissent, which was quite powerful, and to put the chief justice on record joining Gorsuch's dissent, and that the whole thing had a strategic aspect that wasn't required. Nothing in the world changed as a consequence of this set of opinions, Uh, but it avoided a 4-4 when nobody would have spoken at all. Does does that sound right to you? I I can't make sense of it otherwise. Well, and also, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think that Justice Kagan's, it was Kagan's majority, if I'm correct, and I don't think that um, she made any real progress for her side. She basically said, rather than saying that um, the uh, you know deciding on whether Congress had ceded too much power to the administration or not. They ba- she basically said, well, that isn't what happened in this case. Uh, the Attorney General was only allowed to make some minor decisions. It wasn't like Congress threw a whole portion of the law to him. So there wasn't really any you know on the key question. It was pretty much avo- uh, avoided. That that was her interpretation, and of course Gorsuch's interpretation is quite different. But Kagan does say. If Justice Gorsuch is right that none of these delegations are good, that means government doesn't work. But, you know, I, Kavanaugh wasn't on the court when this was argued. It wasn't that he was, he was recused. Why not just set it for re-argument? If, 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 if they're so persuaded that there's another vote there, why not, you know... Good question. I don't I mean, what, what's the, that, that made me think, when I read that, I thought maybe, you know, they're not 100% sure. Or maybe Justice Alito just couldn't bear to vote for a sex offender? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> All right. Well, Rich, uh, what other themes do you see emerging in in the Roberts Court now with two Trump appointees? Um, various and disparate, I guess I would say. Um, you know, this was a term where a lot of justices had a lot to say about a lot of different topics, which is why there were so many opinions in so many cases and kind of hard to summarize. I think one thing that was going on near the end of the term was there was about a two percent chance that Justice Thomas could surprise us all and and say that it was time for him to move on so that President Trump could have a third nominee. That obviously didn't happen. And I think he's staying for 30 more years. Well, what will happen (laughs) instead? I was going to I was going to give him 10 at least. And, and, you know, that could be 10 or more years where we begin to see more and more um, his clout and and his ability to pull some of the uh, perhaps more than just a Gorsuch or an Alito his way. Um, on cases. And, and look, we've had, I guess this is the, the, the overarching theme, I think, is what is the personnel of the court? Um, uh, and we've had so many, you know, two in a row, two changes on the court. I think we could be up for a period of time when we have no changes on the court uh, for many years to come. Now, obviously, that that would be assuming a Trump presidency continues. If, if, we, if we flip it and we have a Democratic president, then we're going to see retirements on the left um, with uh, replacements on the left. Uh, but, but, but I guess my theme still holds there, which is you've now got this 5-4 court. If Kavanaugh isn't to be suspected as a closet suitor, if Roberts is the conservative that you know 95 or 98% of the cases show him to be, then 
um, you know, is this going to be a court going forward for at least a decade or more with the oldest judge on the right being only 71, uh, where we've got a solidly conservative court and it's just Roberts trying to manage the conservatism so that it doesn't look uh, blatant since, you know, the court is divided, five Republican, four Democratic nominees. Um, Roberts, obviously, as the swing vote is another theme. Roberts and Kavanaugh and the degree to which they may be um, you know, a lever against uh, a rightward hoe movement on the court is another theme. Um, Trump's impact, I, I think, you know, uh, one of the prior uh, speakers said, um, I think it was Mike Harvin said, look, Kavanaugh was fine on peace cross on census on gerrymandering. That's true. Um, but I don't think that, I think they wanted both uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch want when they can to show a little bit of independence from President Trump. And I think they showed that on some of the lesser cases. And so it'll be imp interesting to see going forward, uh, you know, whether this is Trump's court. I think it's actually Mitch McConnell's court more than anyone else. Um, and so I guess, you know, I would simply say, and, and I think one other theme of the of the term was, uh, and you only saw it through the writing. You didn't see it uh, on the bench, but some anger uh, from the left in particular and a little bit of impatience from the right uh, with Roberts holding it all together somehow. Um, you know, I think the liberals on the court are uh, with, with um, you know, some of the dissents we saw, particularly the gerrymandering dissent at the end from Justice Kagan. The liberals are clearly worried that they've lost the Supreme Court for a decade or more. And um, you're going to see some very forceful writing you already have, and you're going to see more of that going forward. Jess, Adam, any thoughts on themes? Yeah, I mean, I would, just to, to, to pick up on, on something that, that Rich mentioned, I think that one of the, the uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the shoes yet to drop uh, in, is, is when some of these uh, uh, separation of powers conflicts now with the, uh, between the, 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 the House and president or the president's other uh, opponents uh, reach the Supreme Court. I mean, we saw, uh, you know, a, a bit of that in the in the census decision, but we may see a lot more of that uh, coming up, uh, you know, as, as soon as tomorrow, depending on what the president does today. Uh, and uh, and then there are these uh, subpoena cases that are floating around. There's the there's the uh, emergency declaration and the border wall funding. Uh, there's a lot of things that may uh, put the Supreme Court in a position of having to rule very, very directly on uh, this president's uh, uh, use of, of power. And I think that will end up being, uh, I think, uh, for, at least for the public, uh, an important uh, 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 reference point for what, the, what, this, uh, what this court stands for. I also think it's easy to think the court meant to have a medium or even biggish term this year because of the way it ended. We did have census, we did have gerrymandering, but I think the court, in fact, worked very hard to stay out of the spotlight, and it took those cases only because it had to. Uh, the uh, gerrymandering cases, because they're the rare part of the docket that's not subject to their discretionary review, they have to take them, they're direct appeals, so they had no choice but to take those. And the census case uh, was brought to them on the theory that it was an emergency and needed to be decided by June 30th. Uh, that statement may be subject to revision. <laughs> um, well, Adam, you wrote that there was a, a bit of uh, throat-clearing aspect to this term. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the big issues that are coming up next term. Next term is going to keep us busy. So next term we, we have DACA, uh, President Trump's 
uh, effort to rescind an Obama administration initiative to protect young immigrants from deportation. That's a huge case. We have three different cases on uh, Title VII's uh, bar of sex discrimination and whether that language extends to uh, sexual orientation and transgender people. We have a Second Amendment case that may go away, but even if it doesn't, uh, we're likely to have a Second Amendment case soon enough. As Rich mentioned, the Louisiana abortion case is likely to come to the court. They've already taken this Montana uh, uh, sc religious scholarship case. There's a case on uh, whether unanimous juries are required. It's going to be a good term. And that's uh, one other thing, obviously, going on or just went on in New Orleans is the ACA case, which um, probably, I'm curious what you guys think, probably less than a 50% chance it gets to the Supreme Court in this next term, but it would be a close, you know, depending on how fast the, the Fifth Circuit rules in New Orleans, if they rule in that case and if they uphold, which I guess the, I wasn't at the oral argument, but a lot of people who were there say it did look like the two um, uh, conservative just judges thought that there was a good argument for why Obamacare goes down. The Supreme Court would have to hear that case, um, and whether it got to the Supreme Court next term or whether somehow they could finagle it so that it took a yet another term to get there is a question. If the uh, Obamacare, uh, if Obamacare is upheld um, uh, by the Fifth Circuit, I think probably the Supreme Court doesn't take it. I agree with all of that. The timing is closed. The Fifth Circuit has a reputation for uh, getting their opinions out fairly soon. If they get their opinion out by September, October, there's no reason it couldn't be on the docket, you know, for March, April argument. Right. Um, so the dissenting judge might want to take her time. <laughs> yeah, so we're likely to see a lot of blockbuster opinions uh, coming out just months before the presidential election. So do you think the uh, the court is going to be a, a big player in in the upcoming presidential election? I think for President Trump, for sure, because, you know, one, you know, one thing that he is, you know, he's regularly speaks about really, uh, you know, his, uh, the, his two nominees uh, getting getting confirmed. Uh, that's uh, you know, those, that's not really, you know, subject to reversal or, or review uh, at this point. Uh, and that, for him, turned out to be a, a tremendous motivator, maybe even for some people in this room, to support President Trump. So uh, I think he will be talking about it plenty. Uh, the Democrats, uh, they've never been able to really make it a big campaign issue for them, at least for their base. Uh, maybe it is for some of their donors. Uh, they've talked about it a bit more in the primary, and maybe it does matter to some segments of their, their, their primary base. But uh, I, I don't expect that it will become a central issue for them because in the past it has not really been a big motivator for their, uh, their base, and I don't know that it will be more than a, a marginally more significant one for them this time. But it's an interesting question why Democrats don't beat this drum more. Uh, I mean, there, there certainly is the sense on the left that something went amiss with the Garland nomination. But you don't hear the candidates talking about it. There's a movement now, uh, what, what's, what do we currently call it, the Judicial Crisis Network? Um, yeah. yeah. To say, President Trump disclosed his list of nominees, why don't you Democrats disclose your list of potential Supreme Court nominees? Which is you know sort of brilliant, given that Trump did, during a pending vacancy, and in an effort to reassure people who didn't think he was conservative enough, did for the first time, to my knowledge, as a presidential candidate, 
disclose a list of nominees that worked very well for him. And now to flip that on the Democrats, that that's now some kind of obligation in the absence of those factors, in the absence of a vacancy, is an interesting and sort of brilliant move. Well, there is the project run by, I think, the Alliance for Justice, which is kind of the the leftward version of JCN, uh, that there is a discussion of pulling together a list of potential uh, nominees for a future vacancy uh, in a Democratic administration. You know, the um, there are some liberal groups now that are pushing, uh, and not all liberal, they call them reform groups. I hate to use that word because it has various connotations, but pushing... Um, uh, Democratic uh, primary candidates to um, endorse term limits for Supreme Court justices and to a lesser extent, because uh, it has much less of a chance, endorse uh, court packing, adding justices to the Supreme Court. So that's one area where uh, liberal groups, like you mentioned Alliance for Justice in another area, uh, are trying to push the Democratic candidates in that direction. I think that, I mean, I agree with everything Justin Adams said, uh, that this is always more of an issue for conservatives than liberals, but uh, you would think, and it's kind of a macabre topic uh, to was re- re- referring to uh, somebody's chances of being alive, but um, if you're a Democratic or a liberal voter and you're concerned about um, the 5-4 court going 6-3 or 7-2, the two oldest members of the court are liberals, Ginsburg and Breyer, and you would wonder why they wouldn't try to make an issue of you know, a vote uh, for President Trump you know, obviously it's going to be tough for Justice Ginsburg to outlast an eight-term presidency, uh, or at least you could argue that, having been through three cancers. So I would think that how you raise that issue is is kind of awkward, obviously. But for, uh, you know, in terms of how a liberal votes uh, in the 2020 election, I would think that, uh, you know, wanting a Democratic president back so that one and probably two justices could retire in the next two years, just like two did for President Trump, would be an issue. I just don't know how you raise that issue. So one one final question about the, the term that just ended. Um, I'd, I'd like you all to share if there's one opinion that you particularly enjoyed reading and that you'd recommend to um, to our audience today, whether it's a majority opinion, a concurrence, or a dissent. You know, Justice Kagan's dissent in the gerrymandering case got a lot of attention. Uh, Justice Thomas had some very interesting uh, writings this term, including one uh, where he suggested revisiting New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, so I'd love to get your uh, your your favorite opinion or most interesting opinion that you read. Well, I, mine was a footnote. I'm going to read it. Um, it was in the. It, I'm joking, obviously, but it was in the Kaiser case, and I, I just couldn't resist finding this while we were listening to the previous panel. It was Justice Kagan in her Kaiser decision. She was referring to something that Justice Breyer brought up uh, during oral argument, where he was saying, you know, that we ought to be, we ought to cede this kind of deference to the agencies, and he mentioned something about a moiety. And per, uh, pardon me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. So, uh, and he said, you know how much I know about that? As if, you know, you know, let's leave this to the agencies, folks. Let's not kick it to the judicial branch. In her decision, she writes in a footnote, in case you're wondering, the regulatory definition of active moiety is the molecule or ion excluding those appended portions of the molecule that cause the drug to be an ester, salt, including a salt with hydrogen or coordination bonds, or the non covalent derivatives such as a complex chelate or clathrate of the molecule responsible for the physiological or pharmacological action of the drug substance. So 
That was my personal favorite. I would hate to have been the clerk in charge of making sure that was right. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like one of Justice Thomas's patent uh, decisions, actually. <laughs> he often gets those, those highly technical ones. Um, so so Je- Jess has already referred to it, but the, but the back and forth in the Flowers case, the Batson case, uh, about the guy who uh, was the subject of a six-trial-long campaign to exclude uh, blacks from his juries is very well written on the part of uh, Justice Kavanaugh for the majority. And uh, along with um, Justice Thomas's separate writing suggesting that uh, we should revisit New York Times against Sullivan, uh, I also uh, noted his uh, aside in his dissent in the Flowers case that the press, of course, is more interested in titillating than informing. <laughs> Such a thin line, isn't it? Um, what, what, there, like, there's no manageable standard, really. <laughs> um, the uh, you know it's weird. Like you mentioned that when you mentioned like which which opinion really sort of s- struck me. I, I didn't think in terms of of the of the entertainment value. Perhaps I, I should have. What, what actually struck me in terms of the opinion that that I thought had the had the you know the uh, the greatest proportionate consequence the, uh, to to the number of words was. Uh, a bit more serious one, the, the per curiam opinion um, in the Ray case in February. This is when the uh, Muslim inmate in Alabama had, uh, uh, he, he had sought to have a uh, Muslim chaplain accompany him into the death chamber for his uh, final breaths, uh, and the state of Alabama uh, did not permit him. The 11th Circuit uh, stayed his execution to continue uh, proceedings over this, this issue, and the Supreme Court uh, uh, at Alabama's uh, petition quickly uh, swooped in and lifted that stay, and there was a very brief opinion, uh, a procuring opinion unsigned, that said, uh, that cited a precedent saying that, uh, you know, when someone raises uh, an issue, it may be a factor in deciding whether to grant a stay. So it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a very controlling doctrine. They just said, we're allowed to look at uh, when this issue was raised. He raised it too late. You know, stay lifted. Or they didn't even say raise it too late. They just implied that that was the the reason. And there was a dissenting opinion by Justice Kagan, uh, on behalf without a clever footnote like that, uh, quite serious one given the issue uh, on behalf of the the liberal wing, saying you know, this the the, the majority is you know I, I fear uh, grievously wrong here. And what and what surprised me was that given the solicitude of really the whole court towards uh, religious exercise and religious rights claims. And the fact that the court had unanimously ruled for a Muslim inmate in, in Arkansas regarding his, uh, his beard and his, his uh, right to have a beard, that the majority had so quickly dismissed this claim and uh, the guy was executed under Alabama's uh, protocol later that, that night, I was kind of surprised that there was so little uh, attention given to this religious claim. And it sparked a lot of back and forth throughout the term. I mean, it came because a similar issue came up the next month involving a Buddhist inmate, and Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately to explain why he believed this was distinguishable from the February case, and we didn't know exactly who had voted how, but then a couple months later, there was more uh, back and forth. Justice Alito wrote a very long opinion explaining his position on it, which provoked a uh, response from Justice Kavanaugh that the Chief Justice answered, uh, and I think that that very, very short per curiam opinion uh, in terms of the reflection it caused within the court and outside the court, uh, uh, dealing with some very you know, profound concerns and serious concerns, uh, uh, I think uh, was really, in my mind, the one that w- was most surprisingly uh, significant. 
Well, with that, we've come to the end of our time. Please join me in thanking our panelists.